This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome. It's episode 479 of IAQ Radio, and it's Friday, September 29th, 2017, we are live, and this week we welcome back the restoration lawyer, Ed Cross, and the restoration industry's global watchdog, Pete Consigli. We'll also have some reports that I've uh, picked up from some of the areas that have been hard hit by the hurricanes. But before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services or products. And last but not least, check out the IAQ Training Institute website and the Healthy Buildings summit.com website the events coming up november 2nd through the 4th great uh things are looking really well there so looking forward to seeing some friends and uh, listeners at our event at seven springs resort in somerset pennsylvania we also have continuing education credits available just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com let's turn it over to the z-man for today's iaq radio trivia question and now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. The answer to last week's IQ Radio trivia question was snoring is the primary cause of sleep disruption for approximately 90 million American adults. The IQ Radio question for Friday, September 29, 2017, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company, creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here is today's trivia question. The word lien, spelled L-I-E-N, is the right to hold property of another until debt is paid. What is the derivation of the word lien? Back to you, Joe. Okay, thank you, Cliff. Today we're going to have a special report on Harvey, Irma, and Maria. We're going to continue to follow up on these three very devastating hurricanes as time goes on. We're talking today about the legal perspective and a little update on the restoration progress in those three areas. And to do that, we welcome the restoration lawyer, Ed Cross. He's built a successful law practice that specially caters to the needs of insurance damage repair contractors and remediators. Mr. Cross has a bachelor's degree in speech communication with an emphasis on public speaking from California State University at Northridge. And his uh, Juris Doctor is from the Western State University in Fullerton, California. He's also well known for his risk management advice 
cleaning and restoration contracts and related forms available for free and for purchase on his website. These are simple one-page forms in plain English that can protect payment rights and deter lawsuits. And uh, he's also recently added some that are more specific to Texas and Florida. We'll talk about that as time goes on and as we discuss the legal issues surrounding these devastating hurricanes. Cliff, if you could do Pete's. I will. Thank you. Pete Consigli, CRWLS, is known as the Restoration Industries Global Watchdog. He's been a longtime friend of mine uh, and the IQ Radio Show. Pete Consigli has been a member of the restoration industry since 1977. In 2008, Pete was the recipient of the Martin L. King Award, and in 2012 was made an honorary member of RIA, the second member, actually. Marty was first. He served the association the past several years in the dual role of RAA education director and industry advisor. Pete presently serves as an advisor with RAA's education and certification committees and staff. He is the water loss specialist prep course facilitator and program advisor. Pete also advises the RAA board of directors and the association management team on matters impacting the restoration industry and RIA's mission. Thanks for joining us, Pete. All right. Well, let's get started, Pete. Let's jump right into it. Um, you you are in the, you know, you're in the uh, zone, one of the zones anyway that was hit. Irma uh, hit not too far from from your location there. Although I understand you were spared. Um, we would appreciate if you could give listeners a little update on how recovery is going in uh, Florida. If you've, I don't know if you've had a chance to talk to some of the RIA members, RIA members in um, Texas, and then um, most recently, again, we got got hit in uh, Puerto Rico and um, Saint Croix again. So, Pete, if you would give us a little update on how things stand. Yeah, thanks, Joe and Cliff. Thanks for that great introduction. It's always always good to be back on the show again. So listen, I uh, just just a quickie. You know, I was going to call in a couple of weeks ago, but uh, it was too late, and I couldn't get online. Uh, when uh, I, I wound up calling in at uh, at the end uh, during the roundup, but uh, you know, I, I live in live uh, in the Naples Bonita Springs area, which is really where the heart of the hurricane Irma hit. So we weathered the storm that evening. It was it was really something as it just pounded. So. The, the most devastated areas in Florida on the Gulf Coast on the on the west side, and it starts at Marcos Island, which is right below where Alligator Alley is there, Interstate 75, and then it goes all the way up through Collier Lee counties, which is the communities of, of Naples, Bonita Springs, Estero, Fort Myers, Cape Coral, and Lehigh Acres. The, those were the hardest hit areas. They were down for a long time, and it, it took at least over a week to start to get some semblance of uh, of normal there. Um, now there's a lot of there's, there's a significant amount of damage in the Tampa Bay area and Orlando and other parts of the state that don't really kind of get the airplay that um, uh, that the coastal areas get. So um, I uh, have kind of been commuting back and forth to uh, over the Alligator Alley to the west side of, uh, to the, excuse me the east side of the state, which is the Atlantic side. They were originally um, forecast to get the eye and then then the hurricane moved and it hit the other side so they were kind of spared and that was actually the same forecast they had from matthew last year and then it bypassed and it it wound up going up more towards the carolina so so uh, the keys obviously got really pounded bad they're 
I think they're still down. I've talked to some members down there doing work in the whole Miami and Dade County community. And then uh, there's a, there was a lot of wind and rain damage all up through Broward County and the Palm Beach counties, which uh, uh, a lot of heavy residential and commercial areas. But what I noticed uh, when I started commuting back and forth and helping support the members and uh, visit different sites is that the, wet, the uh, east side of Florida uh, bounced back quicker. It was more back to normal. They didn't have the long gas lines and the flooding and all that. Uh, Internet service came back more, more quickly. Stores opened. I, I, the last uh, weekend, and I'll be going back this weekend, heading back home again uh, to commute back and forth. There, it, it's, it's some semblance of kind of coming back, but I noticed there was still some flooding where the water didn't recede. I mean, there were people in kind of the canoes, not as bad as Harvey in Texas, but there was still some low-lying areas where, where that was happening. Now, you know, after Maria came through and hit a lot of the same areas, and some of that offshoot um, hit some, got some pretty good rains on the east coast of Florida. Um, I've talked to a, a handful of companies that are going down to Puerto Rico to do work. One in particular, and uh, they they sent a news release out that was either in Cleanfax or R and R that was um, out there was Interstate, their big national company. They're kind of working all over the place. To, uh, I have two other major players that that headed down to Puerto Rico uh, to do hotel drying. There's a lot of mold remediation that started. That's another thing. If some of these communities couldn't get back, they went from just normal water and drying and they're into the mold area. There's a lot of IEPs working down here. There's Marcos Island. There's all kinds of homeowners associations that were hit. Um, so so it's moved to the point where now, you know, trying to follow the S-500 and trying to uh, contractors and, and some of these associations are requesting to really want somebody to, to serve with the to, to serve with the development protocols, and also uh, you know any kind of post uh, verification uh, clearances that might be required with drying or mold or whatever the case would be. Of course, the state of Florida has very strict rules that deals with licensing for both mold remediators and assessors. I know that I and Texas does too, as does Louisiana. I remember after Harvey, Texas did suspend their licensing rules. I don't know if that was temporary, if it's still in effect, but to my knowledge, Florida never did that. We suspended the tolls on our highways for a while. I think the tolls are back uh, back in service now. That was uh, that was about it. So, um, you know, there's a lot happening. I've been out in the field. I've uh, visited with many of the members of uh, the rental supply companies uh, like uh, Sunbelt are prominent down here. Uh, one of your marquee sponsors, the John Don Boys and uh, they, they have people on the ground helping support their customers and support the effort. They, I know that they did that last year after Matthew also. Um, and I, I'm, I'm sure there are probably some of the other vendors and suppliers are, but I, those are the guys that I, I've seen and seen out there. Can't see everybody. So uh, anyway, that's, that's kind of where, where things are at. Restoration is underway, and I think there will be quite a bit of it going on for quite a while as people are still trying to figure out coverages and uh, and just kind of get some sense of normal. To normal, And I guess the final comment is they're still keeping an eye on the Atlantic. The hurricane season is not over. There's more activity out there. It really goes through November 1st, so we have at least another solid month of that. And um, it's it's really, it's really tough. So, anyway, turn it back to you. Have you gotten any feedback? I mean, you know, Harvey was here. We had a whole bunch of, you know, um, focus on Harvey. Then Irma hit, and that kind of took some of that focus away and then Maria hit and then, you know, there's even less. What are you hearing about in Texas? I mean, and Ed, feel free to chime in here. If you're talking to any of your contacts in the Texas area, how's it coming along there? 
Well, okay, so what I've been hearing in Texas is I think initially when Irma started hitting, some of the companies started to kind of move to position and stage themselves to, for the response to Irma. I mean, look, working in Texas and working in Louisiana is a little bit different than working in Florida and working in the mid-Atlantic states. For one thing, um, I think after Harvey, there tended to be um, uh, potentially uh, less insurance coverages and there were more issues dealing with all of that. Um, a lot of the contractors, they really look for the commercial work. Um, I don't know how much of that existed in Texas. I, I have a feeling that most of that work, the contacts I've talked to were from the larger companies that already had agreements. They were already staging in place to deal with that. I mean, the, there's dry and chip shoes from all over the country that have descended in this region. Some of them were in Texas, then they moved to Florida. I mean, just in the area where I live, uh, in a lot of these, um, the mobile home and the RV parks, a lot of these guys, I mean, there's, there's people there from Oklahoma, there's people from Utah, there's, uh, there's some of the franchises that have rental trucks with magnetic signs from Michigan and from all over. So they, they got, they're from everywhere, uh, you know, coming here. And Ed's going to talk more about out-of-state contractors working in the laws and, you know, and, and you know, people are always a little uh, suspicious. I mean, I think early on to get the mitigation is one thing, but when you move into the repair phase, I think you want local guys, local licensed guys, people that are here that are going to stand behind the work, um, you know, once the initial kind of glut is off. So I, there's still stuff going on in Texas. Some of the major guys I've talked to said they, they're getting spread thin, but they got stuff there, they got stuff in Florida. And so they're kind of operating both. And, you know, it's a new thing always kind of supplants the old thing. So if Maria wound up impacting and hitting the mainland, then we'd be talking about that and we'd be forgetting about Army. You know, that's just kind of the way it goes. So there, there's still stuff happening. And, um, you know, I, I think these things are going to be going on for a long time. Uh, I think uh, similar to Katrina and Sandy, it'll be several years. And I think the total cost is going to far exceed those storms. Um, so we'll see. You know, I spoke to, um, we had a guest two weeks back, Addison Christian, who's in St. Croix, and this was after Irma, and Irma missed St. Croix. I mean, it, you know, they got the winds and some, some flooding, but it wasn't too bad. St. Thomas got hammered, U.S. Virgin Islands, these are. Uh, but then, unfortunately, when Maria came through, St. Croix and Puerto Rico we're right in the crosshairs. And um, I spoke to Addison last night for about 45 minutes. They do not have electric in most on most of the island back up yet. Um, the, the capital, Christiansted, does have some electric back up because um, there, a lot of theirs was moved underground a few years back. Um, his side of the island, Frederickstead, does not have much electric back up yet. They're primarily working off of generators. And um, I'll be honest, I've never heard Addison quite that. Uh, he was a little shook up. There was it, it was pretty bad. He said that it was just um, the worst he's ever been through, and he's been through a lot. He's been living in St. Croix all of his life, um, and uh, it's going to be a really tough recovery. And right now they're just trying. It, it's not as bad as Puerto Rico, but it is bad. They have a lot of issues, and the biggest one is getting the electric back up. This is a week later now, uh, maybe eight days now. So they do not have electric. Uh, the hospitals and the government buildings are trying to run on backup generators. They do have gas and, and, and uh, fuel for the generators, but uh, very tough time right now for our uh, U.S. Virgin Islands friends and, of course, uh, Puerto Rico. Let's hey, get Ed, Ed Cross uh, I mean, in here first. 
Joe, hey, look, one final thing on that. You know, my cousin has had a place in Puerto Rico for many years, and she was really nervous about that dam that was going to break. I hadn't heard anything on that. I, I think that was okay, but, boy, that that was life-threatening if the dam broke, and uh, I, I don't know what's going on there, but, I mean, in Puerto Rico, uh, it, it seems that there's more support going there. We're not hearing anything on the Virgin Islands, but the, there are there are people responding to Puerto Rico to uh, to do work there. But the problem, as I've seen, has been getting, you know, they've got they've got containers full of supplies sitting in the dock, but they can't get them from the dock to the people. And um, I'm not sure why that's happening, but I'm sure a lot of it has to do with the roads not being passable. Um, and that's that's going to be a tough situation. A lot of people are just leaving the island, unfortunately, and, and they're doing their best to get out of there. But uh you know, a lot of people don't have those means to get off the island. So Puerto Rico, we're going to continue to follow up on that and St. Croix and, of course, um, all the other areas that have been hit. Let's get the restoration lawyer in here. Ed, first, before we um, get into some specifics on legal issues, do you have anything you'd like to add with respect to what you're hearing from, from your clients in the areas that have been hit? Yeah, this is a period of uh, of great chaos. and. Uh, first off, I want to thank you guys for the opportunity to be here again, Joe and Cliff. You do a great job, and uh, Pete always provides a lot of interesting color commentary. My uh, my heart goes out to the victims of these storms, and our thoughts and prayers are with those who lost their homes, and uh, some have even lost loved ones. And we watch this here uh, from California, and it's absolutely mind blowing. Um, this is a period of uh, adjustment and adaptation uh, for these contractors, and uh, we'll have a chance today, and I appreciate the forum here, uh, to talk about some of the different uh, legal requirements and the issues uh, these guys are facing, and my hope is that they can uh, complete these jobs smoothly and get paid and minimize their liability. Ed, well, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, with respect to contract law, has it kind of remained largely unchanged so that contracts that work in one state can be used in others? How, how does that work from the legal perspective? Um, well, uh, the basics of contract law have remained largely unchanged, uh, except that each state has uh, a set of uh, specific requirements that uh, apply to uh, projects that happen in those uh, particular jurisdictions. Uh, for example, um, many of them require specific terms to be included uh, directly out of a statute verbatim to quote, for example, the uh, notice of the right to cancel if the state has one and to uh, talk about things such as the mechanics lien law rights uh, that a contractor has. And so uh, a contract that works in one state cannot be used in another state. And if somebody is using a contract designed for one state in a different state, they need to have a local lawyer review that. I see. And you've got state-specific forms on, on the restorationlawyer.com, but would you still recommend that they have a local guy review that as well? Well, um, we have specific packages on there for California, Texas, and Florida. 
If somebody is operating in a state other than the three of those, we recommend uh, starting with the California package uh, because it's the most comprehensive of all of them because we've got a lot of issues here that don't exist in other states. But if you're using it outside of California, that needs to be reviewed by a local lawyer to insert whatever provisions are uh, necessary to comply uh, with the law of that state. Um, there was uh, a lot of uh, demand for contracts uh, specific to uh, Texas and Florida, and I've had the privilege of collaborating with lawyers licensed in those states to come up with a standardized set of uh, contracts that can be used in those locations. Great. Okay. Um, Cliff, let me turn it over to you. Thanks, Joe. Um, Ed, I guess a question for both you and Pete. The restoration industry has learned some expensive lessons from doing cat work over the years. Can you recount some of the lessons that you've either learned or your clients or people that you know have learned? Well, uh, there's a number of things. Number one, financing. A lot of these guys are not prepared to go into these areas and understand how to deal with logistics and financing just to be able to offer their service. Um, there's been a number of these presentations over the years on association programs, even dating back in the 90s to the, dry, the old dry symposium programs, the WLI programs that we had back in the day. And um, that, that's number one. Number two is understanding the culture and the nature of the communities that you're going into. A lot of these are, you know, hit fairly often, particularly in these coastal areas. And if, if you know, for instance, you know, guys from the north coming down to work in the south, you know, it's kind of like oil, oil and water sometimes that mixes. And even people coming from the west coast going into the southwest and all of that. So I think those kind of things, those are kind of the soft parts of it. You know, the, the money, the financial difference are hard, but if you don't know how to deal with the people and understand that. The other thing is knowing how to deal with these cat adjusters. How to, uh, you know, they sometimes come in, you make a deal with them, but then they're gone, and then later on what happens is you hear from another adjuster, someone else, and then they say, well, no, uh, that was a bad interpretation, or we didn't agree to that, or, you know, whatever. Guys have got hung up on this and got their bills cut and haven't been paid. There's a number of that where everybody kind of keeps passing the buck. You know, Ed will talk more about it. You have to identify who the customer is, who's guaranteeing your money, who ultimately has the final decision. Those are the guys you can have your primary duty to. But, I mean, you're going to have many other people that you have to work with. Understanding how to strategically partner with people. If you're not uh, from an area, and particularly if you're not licensed there, working with local guys that are licensed, that um, whether you're in a prime contract situation or however, you know, you work out the joint ventures or whatnot, the, these are big issues that guys have been burned on a number of times. This is a reason why belonging to associations and participating in some kind of networking group where you get to know people, you understand their businesses, you can make deals that you can live with that are fair. You have to decide ahead of time that you want to do this work and make those deals. You don't wait until all of a sudden the calls come in and you're on site and then figure out, well, you know, how are we going to do this and where are we going to find the guys and uh, um, how do we feed them, how do we house them. You know, uh, how do we establish credit to get our materials? I mean, outfits like Sunbelt and John Down and all the big suppliers, they all tell potential clients ahead of time, do the credit check, give us all the information, be signed up with us, be on the list so that when stuff happens and, you know, and everything hits the fan, the proverbial, you know, hits the fan, then they're in a position to be able to serve you and you can be, you know, higher up in the, in the queue, if you would, 
you know, um, when things when things get all all kind of backed up in that regard. So uh, the, the the other thing that I w- will say to kind of uh, sum this up, and this is a little bit of plug for for uh, CNR Magazine and RAA, and Cliff is aware of this because uh, him and Ken Larson, uh, Peter Crosa, and Phil Roseberg Jr. all were on the editorial advisory committee, and I uh, I sent out a uh, a, a uh, a large group email to a lot of the major uh, association movers and shakers a while back, and we asked for them to uh, answer specific questions similar to what Cliff just asked about lessons learned and what can they pass on. And uh, the October issue of Cleaning Restoration Magazine is going to have several of our members, the high-profile guys. Ed contributed to that from a legal standpoint. Uh, there may be some stuff from Harvey and others in there, too. Um, is in the magazine, and CNR is moving to a, a new special uh, 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 online hub format in October, which more of that stuff will kind of come out, and we're gonna—they're gonna follow the story. There'll be a follow-up in the November-December issue with additional information that uh, didn't make the first cut from Ed on some of the state-specific stuff and uh, other information that kind of filtered in. So they're—they're kind of running parallel, you know, with what you guys are doing on the show to uh, to continue to not let it drop. Ed, Ed what can you add? Yeah, uh, Pete. Uh, nailed it, and I want to echo the comments that he made. Um, I think a lot of contractors uh, need to think very seriously how they're going to get paid for these jobs. And, um, you know, checking out to see is there insurance coverage available or not? And if there isn't, do you have a really solid collectible customer who can afford to pay the bill? Uh, For your typical smaller residential job or smaller commercial or retail job, a lot of times the funds simply aren't there. Um, So naturally, we've got to figure out the logistics, how to get the people in and where they're going to be lodged. Um, And some people go down into these environments uh, without figuring out uh, how they're going to come up with electricity to run their equipment, for example. Where are they going to get the supplies? And uh, sometimes the roads are out. Sometimes the government will actually commandeer equipment. They'll be driving along with the truck, and there's a big desiccant on a truck, and uh, the government, under certain circumstances, has the right to uh, seize that equipment, which can be devastating to a contractor. So we see a lot of contractors with good intentions come in and do beautiful work, and then they're left holding the bag because they haven't uh, figured out how they're going to get paid. And um, it can be very risky going into these jobs where they're not covered by insurance. And uh, I think one of the reasons we have this problem is these big events create an incredible temptation uh, for people to come in and make a lot of money fast. And uh, I think some guys look at it that uh, this is their opportunity to retire. Well, haste makes waste. And what I advise people to do Uh, from venturing out of the area, particularly to work on these, is to be a lot more conservative and a lot more selective uh, in the jobs uh, before you head down there. And be brutally honest with yourself about what your capabilities are and how long you're willing to wait to get paid. Because on a lot of these jobs, you're going to be carrying accounts receivable for a very long time. I would plan uh, to be able to uh, go without getting paid for these jobs for at least six months. Hey, uh, uh, Cliff, I'd like I'd like to tag off for that. Put a little plug in for a previous IAQ 
radio show. And I think, Cliff, if, maybe if you could find a link on this, it would be something you'd put in the blog. Uh, if some of the longtime listeners on there, guys like you, Vic, remember the show that we did about two or three years ago uh, live from Purdue. It was the year that Purdue hosted this uh, global uh, um, uh, disaster recovery conference, and uh, Cliff and Rusty Amaranti from Belfort were uh, industry speakers along with two guys from the demolition industry, and we uh, uh, had a paper published, which is on the Purdue uh, ePubs, their electronic pubs website. It's a 20-page document that was peer-reviewed by Randy Rapp and his counterpart Mark Charette in the demo area and uh, a couple key uh, industry people. As a matter of fact, Radio Joe and um, uh, also Larry Holder from Belfort. And it's 20 pages of questions and answers of uh, on a global nature of uh, all the issues and things surrounding health and safety response in dealing with, the, with, with these global disasters. I think it would be a tremendous uh, reference document. I still get uh, uh, reports from them and the thing being downloaded globally. But, but specifically to the comment that Ed made, this was addressed in there, and I have, and it's been on REA programs, and several of our large members have had this, where the government comes in under the tenant of eminent domain, and if they see something they need, this comes through the Homeland Security. Our members have had they take the things that they look for is fuel and generators are the two really big ones. They'll they'll take them. There's nothing you can do about it. They'll give you a purchase order. And normally you'll get paid a fair value, but you may have to wait a long time. The bigger issue is not whether you'll get paid for those items, it's now you don't have them and you can't service your clients. That's a much bigger issue. But Homeland Security takes precedent if they need those items. So being low profile and not being, you know, really high up there and just operating below the radar, probably a good piece of advice because once you get on the radar of the government and whatnot and if there's something they need, they're going to basically take it. So that's that's something that to be concerned about. Kind of hard to be low profile when you have a huge restoration logo on the side of your semi. Yep, yep. Uh, Cliff, did you want to jump in here? Yeah, just for one second, I just wanted to um, comment on something that Pete said, and he'll probably be able to provide additional information. You know, sitting on my desk is a book called Disaster Recovery Project Management, Bringing Order from Chaos, which was written uh, by Dr. Randy Rapp, and it's available from Purdue University Press. And I ordered it online, and not only did I get it for $20, I got free freight, and they gave me a $2 discount. So... You know, for $18, you can get a, a great book. And, uh, Pete, do you have the details on where they can get yeah. it or how? Well, let get, yeah, let me give you the details on that. What the, what Purdue did is Purdue decided until November 1st or sometime in November, they're offering that book free electronically and $20 if you get it in hard copy. I think the retail price is 75 bucks. Randy wrote that with a lot of his experiences when he was with Halliburton, after Katrina, a number of things, and one-third of the book was written and supported by restoration contractors, including myself reviewed it, as did Patty Harmon and, and Cindy Harris when they were both with RAA and were prominently mentioned in there. He uses that book to uh, as part of educational tool for his students uh, that go through the disaster uh, management program. So uh, CleanFact sent a news release out on that. I think R&R did. We, uh, Randy, I passed that on. Uh, CNR Update did. So it's out there all over the place. 
So I, I would think that uh, any of the listeners who get CNR updates, clean facts, uh, R&R, any of those, the news, news releases are, are out on it. Um, I don't have a specific link or anything clip, but maybe that's something we can research and we can put in a blog for next week. But I think that if you go to the website, you should be able to get it's in the articles. The last two weeks on my show announcement, if anybody looks, it's the first article. Um, I, I put a list of articles together every week, and we've had that running the last two weeks as the top article available. So the link is there, guys. Um, go ahead and grab it. Uh, let's let's take a little break here. We're going to thank our sponsors. We're going to come back. We're going to get into a lot more detail. I want to get a little detail uh, just to give you guys a heads up on this, the difference between the cat adjusters and the regular adjusters, and I'd like to get Ed's thoughts on how we avoid the problem that Pete mentioned where a cat adjuster comes in and says one thing, and then maybe you know the, the company adjuster or the people working at the company say something else. So think about that for a moment, Ed, and we'll be back in 60 seconds. IAQ Radio would like to thank our association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them, wolfsense.com. IAQ marquee sponsors are... John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Okay, we're back for the second half of our interview. We've got the restoration lawyer, Ed Cross, and we've got the restoration industry association or the restoration industry's global watchdog pete consigli in the first half we talked a little bit about some of the issues that contractors have and ed before the break i mentioned i'd like to if you would if you could help listeners understand a little better how to deal and, and pete feel free to jump in with the difference between the cat adjuster that comes out and then um what can happen from there if it moves to someone else's desk well this is a common problem, and most of the legal issues that I see arising occur as a result of the downfall or failure of communications. And when I get involved with cases, the first thing that I try to do is untangle the communications, figure out where the misunderstandings lie. And most of these cases don't turn on the law, but they turn on uh, resolving different people's misunderstandings and making sure that the accurate messages are being conveyed. And I think a lawyer who's doing a good service for the client uh, acts sort of like uh, a mediator to bridge some of those gaps. As for uh, conflicting messages coming from CAT adjusters and uh, desk adjusters, we're dealing uh, with a state of great chaos. And um, I think one of the strongest ways to deal with it is to uh, create a clear paper trail, for example, with group email threads and keep uh, lists, organized lists of issues 
say, well, this adjuster said that, the other adjuster said this, uh, how is this going to be resolved? I think in most circumstances, uh, you're going to be better off chasing down the claim supervisor or vice president to say, uh, which adjuster should we follow? We're getting uh, conflicting information and to have uh, an ongoing stream of requests for information uh, documented in writing as much as possible. Yeah, so let me tell you a lot of times what happens is this information and some of these issues don't pop up until days, weeks, or even months later, and, and guys get blindsided, and this is the kind of the experience of lessons learned. Where I see the, the issues in, in, the, in the past uh, probably the communication was hampered because we didn't have the technology we do today. So I agree with what Ed is saying, that with today's technology, and particularly, you know, a lot of the technology is being used by all the TPAs and just the normal business that most contractors work with around the vendor programs, between, you know, FaceTime and, um, you know, the platforms that are available where different people can all kind of see the daily chronologues are posted on what guys are doing, decisions being made. Obviously, that's helpful, and that's going to document the process. But I think the issues are, are beyond that in relation to this. I think it, number one, deals with potential coverages, whether people either have sufficient coverage or, or they max out their coverages. It also involves situations where um, the people that are going out initially to look and that maybe are claimed, quote, unquote, cat adjusters, they could be contractors. They could be people that are just estimating. They're the eyes and ears of the carriers. And they have limited authority, but the perception could be, uh, you know, we made a decision, this guy said yes to this, no to that, whatever the particular case would be. So you have to be, you know, very conservative, like Ed says, and be very diligent. And what I always tell the contractors is, is where, where you can afford to take the greatest risk is on the front end with the mitigation. You have equipment, you have drying and doing all that kind of stuff. Where you can't afford to and where you need to be real, real clear is when, if the guys, the contractors are getting into the, into the into more significant remediation, they're logging a lot of labor, and or they're starting to put places back together where they have to outlay money to finance the job because they're buying materials. And then you get involved in the lien laws and how to protect yourself and all, which, you know, which is Ed's bailiwick. That's the area where by that time, if you haven't figured out what's going on, then you've just taken huge risks. There's a good chance that you're either not going to get paid, they're going to want to cut the bill, or they're going to use this communication thing to, uh, you know, and, and guys are going to be tripping over each other, and possibly everything, uh, the contractor was perfectly right in a role, great intentions, but there were too many people uh, involved, and then they can't find the original cat adjuster, oh, he's not with us anymore, he lives in another state, da-da-da, uh, da da and that's how it works, and these are the lessons learned if you're going to go into these areas and, uh, do, you know, do this kind of work. Ed, I just want to make sure if you had anything else on that topic. I mean, you know, Pete mentioned lien laws. Um, you've got the, you know, some specific contracts for Texas and Florida. Are these lien laws, they're different state by state as I understand it. Any any comment or, or any um, suggestions you can give our contractors on dealing with that type of issue? Yes. Uh, lien laws are very, very technical. And this is not something that uh, people should venture into unless they're very well versed in that particular area and the rules, and the rules change. Just because mechanics liens you filed last year complied with the law then doesn't necessarily mean they comply with the law now. 
if the technical requirements are not followed. And the rules for lien uh, laws are uh, interpreted much more strictly than uh, laws we see regarding other subjects, primarily because it affects somebody's property rights. And because of that, if a lien is improperly recorded or there's a technical defect with them, and technical defects are very common with these, it can subject the party who recorded the lien to liability for all sorts of damages because when there's a cloud on title, it really impairs the owner's ability to do certain things with that property. For example, a refinance. And during the process where the AR is resolved and the lien ultimately uh, gets released, the owner of the building uh, may have lost an opportunity to refinance at a lower interest rate. The interest rate goes up. It's going to cost them X dollars afterward uh, to get that particular refinance, and they'll file a lawsuit against the uh, contractor to recover that difference because uh, the lien was wrongfully recorded. And the main problem with most of them is that they're recorded too late or that they haven't taken steps afterward to perfect the lien. And in most states, the, the way it works is you file something which isn't actually a lien, it's a claim of a lien, and it needs to be perfected. You perfect a lien uh, or a claim of lien by filing a lawsuit to foreclose on the lien, and then if the judge decides or the court decides that uh, the lien is valid and the contractor had a right to it, then there is an actual lien on the property and the foreclosure uh, proceedings go forward. So uh, this is something that uh, requires professional help if uh, somebody isn't really uh, up to speed on all the technical requirements. And, and that sounds expensive, Ed. So how do you recover your costs that you have into recording and you know getting the lien um, properly recorded and then actually getting paid on it? Um, it's not as expensive as uh, you might think. I mean, uh, there are a lot of ways uh, to get liens recorded for a few hundred dollars, depending on where you go. And it's advisable, depending on the law of your jurisdiction, whether it allows it to actually have something into your contract that allows you to recover collection costs and any associated expenses that come along uh, with trying to uh, chase down that money. Because in most states, you don't have a right to recover collection costs or attorney's fees unless there's actually uh, a written agreement that the customer has uh, consented to making those payments. That's called the American rule, which means that each party bears their own attorney's fees uh, when there's a legal dispute. And the way you get around that is with a, uh, a contract provision that allows for recovery of attorney's fees and costs, including mechanics liens. Hey, Joe. It all goes back to solid contracts from the start. Pete? Right. Yeah, so let, me, let, me, let me weigh in on, on that, your question, Ted, uh, on, from a the contractor's perspective. I think the, re, the, the cost that's involved in filing the liens, making sure the liens are there, you know, and filed properly and protecting the contractor's rights and also complying with the law of whatever obligation they have to the homeowner and the other material suppliers, that's the cost of doing business. I'm not so sure that that's a recoverable cost. 
that's what it, you know what's supposed to be part of that twenty percent overhead and profit that goes on the bottom of a bill. Uh, it, you know that's included as part of the estimating and the kind of the project management. I don't think you'll ever see that as a line item anywhere. That's just kind of part of what contractors need to do to protect their interests. It's kind of difficult to tell the customer, well, we want to charge you to help protect our interest. So no insurance adjuster, don't ever put that as a line item, and I don't think a homeowner either. And plus the fact is where the guys do this stuff in cat work, they're doing this on multi-million dollar projects to really protect their interest. And the little bit of time that's involved in that, even if it's a few thousand dollars at the end of the day, is kind of a drop in the bucket on it all. Yeah, I'm not talking about putting it in as an item on an invoice. I'm talking about it being a recoverable expense in the event that the customer breaches the contract. And Pete raises a good point. I mean, some people record mechanics liens too fast, and they'll actually put it into an invoice, and that's not at all what I was talking about. I'm talking about a situation yes. where there's a dispute, and there's a conflict, and they're stringing you along, and you're forced to escalate it, and you're incurring extra expenses because the customer has not honored their contractual obligations. Yeah, and I, 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 that I understood. But the heart of Joe's question initially was, boy, that sounds expensive. How does the guy get the cost back? Well, if someone doesn't pay and you actually have to sue them, that's what you address. What I'm addressing is that if you have all the proper contracts and you just do, do good diligence, normally you're going to get paid. And you, you, you shouldn't, there's, there is no recoverable expense. It's part of doing business. Right. See, uh, Cliff, jump in here. Yeah, I do. Uh, what I'd like to do is maybe shift attention a little bit. You know, in the state of Florida, they have uh, something called assignment of benefits being permissible in the state of Florida. Uh, and, Ed, I'm sure that you, know, you, you said that you've spoken with Florida attorneys and so on and so forth. It, does a contractor who has an assignment of benefits clause uh, um, have – you know, be better likelihood of, of getting paid in As Florida? a general rule, yes. Um, the laws in each state are uh, very different, and um, they're different in Texas and Florida, which is also different uh, from California. And this is a huge issue. Um, one thing we want to keep in mind is that many property insurance policies have clauses stating that an assignment of benefits is not enforceable without the written consent of the insurance company, and you can imagine how often that consent is granted. <laughs> These provisions are referred to as anti-assignment clauses. And too many people think that insurance policy terms are some sort of holy gospel Okay, just because an insurance company or any other business writes something into a contract doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be enforceable. In fact, sometimes lawyers will include unenforceable provisions in contracts to help serve as a deterrent. So when it comes to assignment of benefits, some states are very liberal about them and others are very conservative. It won't come as a big surprise to hear that some states like California are more on the liberal side and states like Texas are more on the conservative side. California law is very favorable to restoration contractors on this because it says by statute that an anti-assignment provision in an insurance policy is void as to assignments that are made after the loss. The courts here have specifically ruled that this means that an insured can assign uh, 
the rights to policy benefits. Um, unfortunately, um, in other states, it's uh, not as helpful. In Texas, for example, Texas does enforce anti-assignment provisions. And so somebody who's using an assignment of benefits in Texas needs to try to figure out if that particular policy prohibits it and to understand that it's probably not going to be enforceable. Now, Florida has its own special rules on this. Uh, it does honor and respect assignment of benefits, and it also includes the attorney fee shifting uh, rule that allows for recovery of attorney's fees when the assignment of benefits uh, is being prosecuted. One other note, just very quickly while we're talking about assignments of benefits, a lot of contractors think that they have an assignment of benefits when instead what they actually have is only a direction of pay. If the contract says that the insured is directing the insurance company to send the check to the contractor, that's not an assignment of benefits. That does not transfer the legal right to the policy benefits over to the contractor. It's more of an administrative instruction to the insurance company about where to send the check. Assignments of benefits are a whole different animal. That's an actual transfer of legal title, and it should be carefully crafted because the developments in the business environment are changing regularly as to how these assignments of benefits uh, are viewed. It should be uh, stating that it's irrevocable. It should be stating that there's also a direction of pay and that the contractor has a right uh, to receive information directly from the insurance company about the status of the claim. And the customer should authorize the insurance company to disclose that information over to the contractor. And so this is something uh, that should not be done with a homemade form. Somebody who's well-versed in these uh, particular issues should draft an assignment of benefits. Hey, right. hey Cliff. Go ahead, Pete. you got to follow up. Yeah, so that so Ed said something. Using words like irrevocable, uh, word, uh, language that says uh, it, that the homeowner gives the insurance company, uh, authorizes or directs the insurance company to talk to the contractor. This is uh, the same kind of deal in, in language in dealing with mortgage companies. Okay, the contractors are going to move into these jobs and do the repair work, whether it's normal jobs or after a cat. Oftentimes, then the mortgage companies are involved. All of that language for the assignment of benefits is something that needs to be in the contractor's contract that does this, that's the same for the mortgage companies. Otherwise, the mortgage company does not need to talk to the contractor. We'll blow them off and we'll do everything that they can to basically get their hands on the money, control the money. And if the, if the homeowner is in arrears on the mortgage, wherever that money is, the mortgage company would like to use it, even if it's the contractor's money who did legitimate repairs to the property. So, so all of that stuff is transferable, both the mortgage situation and the assignment of benefits. And the key thing that Ed said in Florida, to my knowledge, is the only state that has this, is this fee-shifting statute, which allows the attorney's fees to be paid over and above whatever settlement the courts decide for the actual lawsuit on the property. And that's different in every other state because in other states, with, let's say the settlement is 100000 
and they, and they need that hundred thousand legitimately to fix the property. Well, they they have to pay the lawyer out of that money, which means there's there's, there's some kind of a vacuum that's created there. Whether whether they pay the lawyer on an hourly rate or whether they pay him on uh, you know like on a, a um, um, uh, contingency. Or, yeah, a contingency. Right. Where in Florida, they'll get the whole hundred, and whatever the legal bill is, whether it's ten grand, fifty grand, or whatever the particular case would be, the lawyers get paid that also. This is the reason why the fee shifting statute is actually more authoritative and more important in Florida than the actual assignment because it allows the lawyers to take these cases, and the insurance companies tend to settle if they. Uh, realize that uh, that's going to be the route to go versus uh, them having to get into this whole legal battle and then they may have to pay more. So I know of many other states, uh, many practicing attorneys wish they had a fee-shifting statute too, but uh, I don't think they'll get any support from the insurance lobby on that one. All right. <laughs> Let's, we're going to go to the roundup here, gents. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, draw high. Cut him on, hide him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, draw. All right, let's round it up here. What I'd like to do is um, throw out a question to, uh, I want to start with Pete. Um, you know, a couple shows back we heard that uh, there were services and supplies needed in the hurricane zones and that, um, you know, there was a shortage of equipment. Actually, I heard that again. I was in Florida last, actually earlier this week, and um, one of the suppliers told me that, you know, even the rental companies were out of equipment. Things were really tough. Um, And I'm wondering, you know, what are you seeing, Pete? Is there a shortage of equipment, a shortage of people? What what do they need in these areas that listeners who do this type of work might want to consider supplying? Yeah. Well, let me start off by saying this. There's, there's probably always a shortage of equipment when you get, you know, the 100-year storm, the 500-year storm, whatever. It seems like, uh, oh, God, nothing could ever be worse than this, and then a few years later it tops it. So the industry continually kind of builds and grows and the inventory of stuff is there as we've, you know, from the late 80s up until now, over the last 35, 40 years, you know, as the industry's grown and matured from this. But let me tell you what there is an over uh, surplus of, and that's greed. And Ed kind of alluded a little bit to this, some of his comments, although not directly. The reason that a lot of this equipment doesn't get placed and doesn't get out into the field is that many of the contractors who either have the key contacts with their national accounts or are controlling the situation, everyone has to figure out how are they going to get their little piece of the pie, and everybody always wants the high-margin stuff, and that always tends to be in the equipment area. So a lot of these contractors have a bunch of equipment, but they're not too savvy in how to deal with this. They kind of go gallivanting, and they go into these areas, and they think, well, it'll be people I'll be able to work with them to rent my equipment. And if they haven't pre-negotiated this and don't know the people they're dealing with, they're probably going to get burned or they're going to be put off and not even realize it and there won't be any, and nobody will rent their stuff. I also think that the the suppliers and the manufacturers, they can't make the stuff fast enough. There's always a pecking order in a queue. Who's got the money? Where's the money coming from? Who has credit? Who doesn't have credit? I mean, all those issues have to be taken into account. And this is the kind of stuff that nobody talks about. And nobody wants to openly talk about that stuff. And, and, and the fact is that, that uh, a lot of guys tend to just be greedy. And, um, and um, this lends to a lot of the 
the issues out there. You know, one of the things that uh, Chuck Viola, the president of REA, did after Harvey hit, he and we knew Irma was on its way, he sent an email to the membership, uh, you know, um, thanking them for the work that they were going to do and, uh, you know, encouraging them, wishing them good luck, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then one of the things that he kind of put in his in the little e-blast, he said, and please remember to, uh, and these are not the exact words, but the intent of what Chuck was trying to say was, is please remember, you know, the code of ethics that you subscribe to and be out there, you know, maintain a high bar, treat people fairly, and don't just uh, throw the code out that we would do day-to-day just because people are uh, in these situations where, you know, they don't have any choice and, you know, and, and there's not enough providers to go around for all the service that's needed. And I think the guys that uh, maintain that and keep that in mind are in there for the long haul, will be appreciated, and their businesses will grow and they'll develop client bases. The ones that don't, they come and go, they're short-timers, and there's always going to be guys like that out there. So is there enough equipment to go around? I don't know. I, I think it's hard to answer the question, Joe. I mean, um, in some cases, you know, everyone says, hey, we can't get any more equipment and we need it. In others, you have guys like you're saying, Joe, who say, hey, we have equipment for rent, we have equipment for sale, and supposedly everybody needs it, but how come no one's contacting us? And, um, you know, it's not, it's not an easy question to answer. Okay. And, Ed, you know, Pete alluded to some of the, you know, there are scams, there are unscrupulous contractors, let's face it. Ed, how can homeowners and business owners best protect themselves from these unscrupulous contractors out trying to make a quick buck after a storm? Well, uh there are consumer protection websites that each state has, and they publish a lot of very detailed, helpful guidance material for consumers to help uh, protect their rights against contractors. Uh, Florida, for example, has a website that says the Florida residents lose money because they don't understand contracts when they enter into them or what to do when the contractor breaches the agreement. Uh, it says that in many of these cases, the advice of a lawyer would have prevented the loss. The state suggests that before someone enter into an agreement uh, requiring some sort of payment on a restoration or other kind of contract, uh, that not only should a lawyer review the agreement, but the agreement should detail the obligations. And... Um, and never sign anything that they're not able to read and understand. And um, I think they should insist on a fixed price contract as opposed to an open-ended time and materials deal. I think they should insist on a list of the subcontractors uh, that are going to be working on the project and insist that that get updated before anybody comes on site determine who they are, who they're working for, is that person on the subcontractor list. If they haven't if their identity hasn't been fully disclosed, they should not be permitted onto the site. The owners should try as much as possible to pay subcontractors and material suppliers directly uh, because if they pay a general contractor but the general doesn't pay the sub, the sub can record a mechanics lien and the owner may end up having to pay twice. And lastly, never issue any payment to anyone, not even a progress payment, without getting a lien release to go along with it. Wow, Ed. That, I'm so glad I asked that question because you answered it 
beautifully, and I, I did not expect a few of those uh, answers, so very well done. Cliff, anything hey, you'd oh, like to ask hey, before no, we round no, up? Yeah, no, Pete. Hold on, well, hold on before you turn it over to Cliff. I got, I, I, got, I, got, I got a little bone to pick with that on this one. So, <laughs> he may be the restoration lawyer, but I, I, I'm, I'm the restoration watchdog. And here's the bone that I got to pick with. I, you know, when Ed, Ed representing the consumer in that comment said, you know, demand that you have a, a, a fixed price contract, I, I think that's not always possible. And I think if you can't do a fixed, a, a fixed contract, I think the next best thing in the time of material is the contractor abides. He has a he has a price list of how he's going to charge, a clearly defined scope, and he has what's called a not take C figure. Oftentimes, in these really large jobs. Contract is established to not take C by putting a contingency in there. And what the not take C means is that no matter what, we won't go over this, but it doesn't mean we will bill you that amount. We will we will do the documented billing per the time and material, per the scope that was laid out, and we will support that and we'll pay off of that. Many contractors in these areas when it's like this and there's just mass pandemonium and there's a lot going on and it's undeterminable, they don't know if there's going to be latent damage when you get in there, I think those contracts are fairly commonplace, and I think we'll give good consumer protection if the contract is honest and, and ethical. And quite frankly, just because you have a fixed cost doesn't mean that you're going to get the job done right. There could be all kinds of issues that come out of that, too. So I've always been an advocate for those, those T&M with those types of provisions, with, the, with their price list that's integrated as part of the contract, so they're very clear what you're charging and how you're charging for those particular items. And the only other point that I want to make in this that deals with this consumer protection stuff, and I don't know if it's been mentioned on past shows or not, Joe, but the attorney general for both, well, the attorney general for, for uh, the state of Florida was on all the news shows while Harvey was hitting, essentially saying that they are going to, it's no holds barred and they're going to take no prisoners to anyone that rips off their citizens due to the hurricane. You know, the, the two big things that came up was uh, what people were charging for water and what they were charging for gasoline. I know by the time I got to Florida with Rick Scott, our governor, he went on the air and the gasoline prices were stabilized. They went up 20, 30 cents a gallon, but it was across the board and there was none of that business going on. And they and, and Rick Scott said, too, and so did the guys in Texas. They said, they said, you take pictures, you send stuff in if you're being ripped off and if you see people gouging. And they said, they may not have time to follow up while they're right, you know, in the month and the weeks, you know, right after where they're trying to get their citizens and their states back in order. But they said at some point, those attorney general's offices are going to follow up and the people that are out there doing that kind of stuff are going to be held to account in that. So we'll see what happens. But I think over the years, there's been too much of that going on. And I think the governments and the communities learn from this. And, and with the, the technology age we live in, Boy, everything that you do is going to be recorded, a picture, it's going to be on social media, it's going to be somewhere. So I think people are a little cautious with that. I haven't seen any of that in my travels in Florida that, that where, where that's been going on. I'm not saying it isn't. I'm just saying I haven't seen it. That's good I jump in with a quick comment there. Go ahead, Ed. Time and materials contracts are illegal for residential work in many states across the country. Even when they're not illegal, it's a very good business practice to get into to have a fixed price, even on emergency service, even if you don't know exactly what it's going to cost. In the states where time and materials contracts are prohibited uh, for residential work, such as here in California, I advise my clients to figure out roughly 
how many days it's going to take to dry and to plug in a price for that and to tell the customer, I'm legally required to give you this price, but the price may change. We may have to revisit this. I'm going to come back and monitor the project. It may dry faster than I'm thinking it would. It may take longer. Uh, we're going to have to execute a change order if it comes out later, but this is my best estimate based on my initial visual observation as to what it's going to cost, and we understand that it's subject to change. I've seen a lot of guys get themselves into trouble with not-to-exceed contracts because changes happen and they do end up exceeding them. And time and time again, they've sent me these files to collect $200,000 on a contract that says not to exceed $100,000 and they fail to get a price uh, uh, confirmed. Uh, price lists are good on situations where you just absolutely are not going to give um, a fixed price for it and it's, it's better to disclose something rather than nothing. But on the most practical level, it's really hard to collect money when the customer hasn't agreed to pay that amount of money and they go into court and they say, Your Honor, if I had known it was going to cost this much, I never would have hired this company. Hey, Ed, Ed we're, we're talking apples and oranges here, so let me jump in and clarify. I wasn't really talking about the residential stuff in these cat jobs. No, I'm talking about the large commercial stuff because the large commercial stuff, the owners have clerks that are works. They have ways to document. There's construction management oversight, and there's, there's multiple people involved, and most of the, those large projects are done in some capacity like that. So I wasn't talking about the standard uh, uh, residential stuff. I, in theory, I, I kind of tend to agree with that and all that, and certainly I never would advocate to break the law in a particular state. But you also now added a new piece of information, which you didn't have in the first one, as I chew on the bone a little more. You mentioned change orders. All right, so you gave a fixed price. And, oh, wait a second, something just came up, and now we have a change order, which changes the original deal. So even even though you gave a fixed price, you're, it, they're, they're, you're, it still could potentially change. And the only other thing I want to say, any contractor that would have a, a, an estimate that's not to exceed 100 and then thinks they're going to get paid 200, I think that guy's out of his mind, and I think he doesn't understand the whole process. But anyway, unless the boys... That boys probably want to wrap the show up and didn't figure during the roundup the two of us would be chewing on a bone back and forth. But, you know, brother, I love you. <laughs> Beautiful. Cliff, thank you, Pete. Jump in here, ask any final questions, or let's uh, just ask the gentleman if there's anything we missed. No, just one final question, Ed. One of the things that you're talking about on, the, on protecting uh, the consumer, uh, you said if they uh, were making a progress payment that the, uh, the the lien should be removed. Why? How, how does the lien get put back in place if it's only a partial payment? No, they're not removing a lien. They haven't recorded a lien yet in most of those circumstances. What I'm talking about is a lien release that relates only to that partial payment. Okay, It's, it's limited to just that. It's a progress payment. Uh, lien release only, and the contractor reserves all of the rights to record a lien for future amounts that become due. But the best practice, and again, I was answering that question from the perspective of an advocate for a consumer, is to get a lien release for each dollar that goes out incrementally. Okay. Thank you. Gentlemen, thank you. It's been 
you know, it get we get down into the weeds a little bit, but that's what you need uh, for people that are dealing with these situations. And we really appreciate both Ed Cross, the restoration lawyer, and Pete Consigli, the restoration industry's global watchdog. Guys, thanks again for joining us. I'm sure we'll be back in touch as um, we continue the recovery efforts here. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guests, and of course, thanks to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. John, you got to have faith at the controls. Most importantly, you are a growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. It's the 2017 Healthy Building Summit, November 2nd through the 4th at Seven Springs Mountain Resort in the gorgeous Laurel Highlands of southwestern Pennsylvania. Join industry leaders and educators as they discuss research to practice, navigating changing industries. It's two and a half days of IEQ, remediation, building science, and home performance. Marquee sponsors include John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Particles Plus, count on us. Exhibitors are AEML Microbiology Laboratories, True Tech Tools, Prism Analytical Technologies, FiberLock Technologies. Register now at HealthyBuildingsSummit.com or call 814-754-4808. That's HealthyBuildingsSummit.com or call 814-754-4808. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.